Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, this is Mark Jordan, and you're listening to Tobin Tonight. I guess the first question I got for you is, Mark, how are things uh, with this whole self-isolation and the pandemic treating you? Well, as I'm fond of saying, I've been uh, self-isolating for about 30 years. So it really uh, feels uh, kind of the same to me. But what what I do like is actually that the, my kids are had to come back home. And that's been really great. Really enjoyed having them back they're they're definitely there in the background. That's why you're that's why you're talking about them so nicely, correct? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I, I assure you, if it was my mom or dad and uh, where I'm at home now as well, they'd be saying, "Well, we hate having him around. He's always here. He's always eating our food. He doesn't contribute in any way." No, no, it's it's actually been great because both of them are songwriters. So there's lots of music in this house again. Yeah, I mean, a, a very musical family. I, I suppose when the pandemic is over, we'll have the, instead of the Partridge family, we'll have the Jordan family coming to a CBC. Uh, could be. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I guess it's safe to say now, of course, you just mentioned about your family growing up. Well, you know, your family being very musical, but you grew up in a musical family as well. Of course, yeah. your father being Charles Jordan. Uh, yes. Was this something that you hoped to be involved in someday? Like, was it pushed or was it just happened? There was never any expectations. None of my, uh, well, my youngest brother became a cellist, but my two older brothers t- took different paths and I wasn't going to do music. I, I thought I'd like to do something else. I thought maybe I'd be an actor or something like that, something in the arts, but not maybe not music. But as time went on, I was more and more drawn to, you know, there was such a scene back then, you know, it was the 60s and and it was uh, all about the music. So, uh, and I could, you know, I'm dyslexic. So I'm challenged in, in terms of what I actually can do, depending on how much reading is involved, you know? So I ne- I was never going to be a lawyer, that's for sure. You know, I, I was born at the right time in, in that I didn't really have to study music much because everybody was making it up in those days. Okay. And that suited me fine. I I like your answer there because, of course, when you were mentioning about you always wanted to be in the arts, like we've, I've got noted here, and I'm going to throw a little bit of shade, but not too much shade. You went to Brock University, and of course, Mm -hmm. you were doing film at the time. Now, I'm going to ask you, like, why Brock? Why not? Why not Carlton? Carlton sounds so much better. No, I'm just kidding. So, why, why would you do film at Brock University? Like, what kind of got you interested into the film side at first? Well, I was always interested in film. You know, and that was another thing in in the in the '60s and very early '70s. There was a lot of art houses in terms of uh, like small movie theaters. They're all gone now, but they they showed all the Bunuel films and Fellini and all the 
the French Truffaut, and they showed all those films, and I really loved them. I really spent a lot of time watching those films, so I thought maybe, you know, I'm a visual person, maybe I would I would do that. And and to be quite frank, I was a, a shitty student in high school, and, and Brock University was a new was a new university, and they were looking for students and they uh accepted me so what made you venture into the to the music side of things while you're at brock was it like you know were you interested kind of like in open mic nights and going there or was it just a kind of a side hobby that you said you know what i'm going to pursue this a little bit further well i had always been a guitar player I'd, i'd played guitar since i was maybe 14 or so so i took my guitar to st catherine's and and I put it in a box. I never took it out. That it was okay for about four or five months, and then uh, the the library at Brock University was a tall building on the escarpment, and you you could see Toronto on, from the top. The library was on the top floor, so I always used to work in the library, and I would see Toronto shining across the lake, and all my friends we're getting jobs in cover bands and i just one day i just said you know what that's what i want to do i want to be doing that and i want to be playing my guitar i missed my guitar and i took my guitar out of the case and i played my guitar and the next day i was on the bus back to toronto yeah because i i think that's interesting because of course now you came to be more known as you know being a guitarist more than the film study major at brock university oh, yeah. but of course, with, with Bobby V, explain how this transpired. Well, I got a job in a, in a cover band, as I sort of thought I would. And that was my sort of u- university training on how to write songs, playing other people's hit songs. And we, we got pretty good. And Bobby V was, you know, sort of bubblegum matinee idol type guy. And he used to come up and play the Young Street Strip, a couple of clubs like Cockdoor and, you know, those clubs. And um, and his agent, I don't know, heard of us, I guess. And he was looking for a backup band and he tried us out and it worked and, and it, it lasted for a few years. I like the irony in what you just said there, too, of course, where you said that you kind of became known a little bit for, you know, covering other people's work. And then, you know, in hindsight now... People also like, like we'll get into like Rod, Cher, Diana Ross. Like they basically have taken some of your work and made it famous. So I think it's like a whole wraparound, as you can call it. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, you know, I learned to write songs by playing other people's songs because there were no, you know, you couldn't go anywhere and learn to write a pop song. You sort of still can't, right? No, I mean, and that's it. Like, I find today's music, as much as you can't really find a way to write a pop song, like, all the songs sound similar. So it's almost like if you take one song and then just kind of said, well, I'm just going to add my own little approach to it. It's it's almost like, well, there you go. But sometimes that can work and sometimes it backfires. Now, in 1977, you reached a deal with Warner Bros. Records, which created the hits uh, Marina Del Rey, and survival. Obviously, these are great accomplishments, but if you don't mind me talking about this in a little bit of a different light, like the struggle of getting these breaks, because previously you released It's a Fine Line, New York Kid, 
and Original Sin. And it had to be a little bit frustrating, I guess, with like, you know, you think these songs are great. There's other people around you that might say, love these songs, but like, you're just not getting the recognition they deserve. How did you, ex- like, you know, how did first, did you take that and then turn this into getting a record deal here? Well, you know, you have to realize what a small percentage of the marketplace that the Canadian music business was in those days. You know, there were big stars. I mean, other than Gordon Lightfoot and uh, Ian and Sylvia and, and Joni, there wasn't big, big stars coming out of it. There, there, there were no stars made in Canada, put it that way. They came out of Canada, they went to the States, and they became stars. And so as long as I was in Canada, I knew it was going to be very, very difficult to have much success. And, you know, in those days, there was no CanCon, and you you actually could not get on the charts in Canada unless you had a chart number in the States. They wouldn't chart. Can you believe that? It's crazy. But that's how it was in those days. You had to have a, you had to be on the charts in America to get on the charts in Canada if you were Canadian. I knew that was difficult, and I just liked the American approach to to music. And uh, you know, it it didn't seem strange to me. My father was Canadian, but he did all his business in New York, and I was born in New York, so I it was easy for me to go down to the states. Yeah, it was like a, it's an easy transition when you've already like kind of been there and know like you know the a little bit about the experience of the city, I guess as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there was another thing, you know, I really liked American music. I uh, when I was a kid, I my mom bought me a radio and, and I kept it beside my bed. And I'd listen to the radio at night, and and then I got the idea of taking uh, the aerial wiring up an aerial and I attached it from the radio to the drain pipe of the house and I could get like Mars on that radio you know things like uh, the old time gospel hour and down in uh, Louisiana depending on storms and which way <laughs> the, the storms were were headed I could you know you get you get like crazy radio stations in in the south and you'd hear black music that you never, never heard in Canada. Do you think now with the the CanCon, especially in Canada, that helps Canadian musicians? Or do you think it's in a way still kind of, you know, gives them a little bit of a label of, well, now you're just a Canadian musician? It's hard for me to judge exactly because I'm not starting out in Canada anymore. <laughs> but I think it was definitely in my day it was needed because it, there was a bias against Canadians. So we needed to do that. I suspect there's no bias against Canadian music because it's as good as anything out there. So I, I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure it's needed, but I, I wouldn't say it's not needed either. I'm not, I, I don't think I'm qualified to, to sort of say because I'm not in the trenches, you know. That's fair. I mean, the only the, the only reason I kind of brought that up is because my take on it is, you know, when I when I was younger and I, I was like, oh, well, I want to have my own radio station someday or I was just playing music through. I thought it was a pretty cool device that I got for Christmas that you can actually find a random FM, FM dial that had just static and you could hear yourself through that static on the radio. So I thought everyone could hear me. Uh, even though it was probably just you in your own room and your your brothers are like, oh, he's he thinks everyone can hear him. Isn't that special? So I was like, oh, well, let's let's play some big hits. And 
I had that philosophy pretty much right up until I joined a radio program and I realized just how important, you know, CanCon can be because there's acts like at Algonquin College that because of that CanCon law, you start to go, oh, like, this guy's really good, but how come he's not mainstream? Oh, well, I wouldn't have heard of him only for I have to play a certain amount of Canadian music. And then that's kind of how you get the exposure. So I think in that landscape or that perspective, I think it's it's needed. But it's almost like you got to put yourself in those shoes to really appreciate that, okay, that's why we have it. And if we had it back in the day, I'm sure things could have been very, very different. No, absolutely. I mean, there's no bias against Canadian artists, I believe, uh, now. But, but there certainly was, you know, back in the... You have written some songs there for Rod Stewart, Sheer, Diana Ross, etc. The one that, you know, comes to mind, and I have it on my, on my phone, one of my friends at Carlton loved this song. And at the time, I was a little bit like, you know, like, why does that song sound familiar? And then when they played it, I was like, oh, okay, of course, now I know what it is. But it was the uh, rhythm of my heart. Um, so, like, take us through, like, how you came to write this song and then how it ended up in Rod Stewart's hands. Well, uh, my dad was a classical singer, but he he liked all kinds of music, and, and especially folk music. He loved it, and he used to collect it. So uh, he used to play it around the house when I was growing up. So I knew that idiom, you know, of, uh, the Irish and Scottish and, you know, even maritime folk tradition. I, I'd heard so much of it growing up. This song was not written for Rod, but it was just a song that I started playing. I started playing the chorus uh, one day when I was in L.A., and I, and I took it to my songwriting partner, John Capek, and we finished it. And how it got to Rod was basically through, through my publisher. I was signed to Warner Chapel Publishing, and Rod was looking for a song. He, he had finished his record, and, he was, he, and it was... Well, I'll tell you the backstory. The, the, the guy who A&R'd Rod's record used to be a, a publisher in London, England. He used to be a Warner Chapel publisher. And he heard that song years before Rod did it. And he always liked it. And he always thought this is for Rod Stewart, but not now because Rod was in his sort of glam rock phase, you know, of his career. Okay, so he was like thinking ahead. Yeah. And then he, so he put it, on a shelf where he, he put all the songs that he liked and he remembered it. And, and, and later he became, I uh, moved from the publishing side of Warner to Warner records. So he, A&R Rod's record, I think it was six years after the song was written and he remembered the song. He, he gave it to Rod and Rod loved it. And, and I think he loved it because it had that kind of Celtic folk, at the core of it, you know? Yeah, I, and I, I kind of do, like, again, I know, like, when he was saying that he was a little bit thinking ahead and, you know, of course, at the glamour stage, but to an extent, I believe that even though it does have that Celtic kind of sound, it still can be, I'll use it in my terms, still kind of rockish. It can still sound like, you know, and maybe it's just Rod's appeal to it of bringing it there, but it still does have certain aspects to it that make it sound a little bit rock as well. Well, certainly the way uh, Rod sings it, but <laughs> but if you can take a lot of folk songs and and turn them into rock songs because they're so damn simple. How did you get songs in the names of you know 
getting them to Sheer and Diana Ross and like even Olivia Newton John and Groblin, for example. In those days, you, you had to be signed to a publisher. And when, you know, there were about 500 of us in, in LA, and I wasn't nearly the most successful. Uh, but there there were very few of us and we were signed to publishers. You know, there were four or five big publishers and there was about 500 of us writing about everything that you heard on the radio, except, you know, the bands that wrote their own material. But but for artists that weren't writing, like Cher, like, uh, Joe Cocker, like, you know, all those artists that, that we wrote for, who didn't write their own stuff, that's that's where they got their material. They or their managers went to publishers and the publishers would play them songs that they thought would, would work. Okay. I, I like that. Yeah, that's, it sounds like just a, a process that can be very panicky at times, especially when it's like your career for like writing songs and then if you're there and no one's taking your songs, you're kind of thinking like, it can be frustrating, I guess, at times because this is kind of your livelihood. But, you know, it seems like in today's world, the people who write their their own music are the ones who perform their own music. And in terms, sometimes it's almost like they get a lot more credibility now. And this is just me talking. Like you can intervene at any point and say, like shut shut the f up, Brian. You don't know what you're talking about. But well, you gotta you gotta understand that before Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan was one of the first guys who who wrote songs and sang his own songs. Before that, like him, you know, when I was growing up there were singers and there were songwriters and they were different. It, it transitioned all the way through the eighties until most singers, even if they don't write, write the songs, they sing their, their names are certainly on the credits, but, but a lot of them have something to do with the writing as well. You know, when I started out, it was writers and singers, and they and they were different. Yeah, and I I like the point there because you know even when I look at today's acts like your your Sam Hunts, your your Luke Combs, especially in like country music, a lot of them will write their own stuff or maybe have a few writers involved with them. But in the nineties when mm -hmm. I was growing up, like the boy bands and girl bands, like you'd like to believe they wrote it, but then when you get older, you realize like oh my god, like you had a six sixteen no. year old singing this song. But yet it was like written by a 30 or 40 year old man. And you're like, okay, this kind of brings a little bit of new light to it. But at least they, they got the right person to market it, I guess. Yeah, but it's so it's morphed into a different kind of art form over the years. Now, of course, with COVID, the Junos were canceled or postponed. You, of course, won a Juno back in 1994 for the producer of the year for Waiting for a Miracle from Reckless Valentine. What did this award mean to you? And, you know, what did the Junos in general mean to you? Yeah, no, it's lovely. And it's uh, it's, it's just nice to be acknowledged for what you do because, you you know, when you're songwriting it, you're sort of working in isolation a little bit. And so uh, when, you, uh, when you realize that uh, something you've written means something to somebody, it's really why you do it, right? That's going to do it for this episode of Tobin Tonight. Our thanks to Mark Jordan for coming on the show. Remember, you can find past, present, and future episodes on TobinTonight.com, Spotify, and iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and leave a comment or two. For Tobin and myself, this is Jacob saying thanks for listening, and good night.
Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.